Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, if you would do so. Genesis chapter 22. We read verse 1. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, the lad, and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. Verse 7, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, verse 8, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The Lord will provide. Verse 14, we read, verse 14, in fact, Abraham called the name of that place. You know the story of what happened, how Abraham had stretched out his hand, verse 10, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, from heaven, verse 11, and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And he provided this ram in the thicket, verse, verse 13. But Abraham, verse 14, called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What a powerful lesson for, for Isaac. The Lord will provide, Yahweh Yirah. The Lord will provide. Isaac saw firsthand the lesson that Abraham had learned many years earlier. Because he'd learned that lesson, Abraham that is, when Isaac was born as that, as that, that heir that he had awaited for a long time, that God would provide. He provided Isaac and God in this case, God provided a special, a special replacement for, for Isaac so that Abraham did not need to offer his only son. But Abraham, Isaac learned that day the the importance of the fact that God will provide. It's a lesson that resonates with us, doesn't it? When we think about the situation of the world around us, look at the citizens of our land. I mean, if you look around and think about what's going on, our neighbors, our fellow citizens of this land, are, are looking for someone to provide for us, someone to provide a means to solve the problem in our countries, the divisions, the strife, the cultural divide, the value division, the racial and the socioeconomic fault lines that are fracturing our country. We're looking for someone 
who will provide solutions to take care of the problems in our, in our land, to take care of us as citizens. Someone who has the answer to why we're suffering from this virus and how to protect ourselves and make it go away. You know, modern medicine has not healed our diseases. We may live a long time, but our people are sick as a nation. If you look at the statistics of what we are about in terms of health, we are a sick nation. We ask who has the recipe to peace in our land when we seem to be involved in a never-ending saga of political turmoil. It's not just the last year. It's not just the last decade. It's not just the last two decades or three generations. Our nation is a history of political turmoil. People actually had duels and shot each other and killed each other over political differences. This is a history of our, of our nation. Who will have, who has the recipe for peace? No system, no political system invented by man has brought real and lasting peace to this earth. Democracy has certainly not healed our land. And who will provide for those who are one step away from financial ruin as, as poverty stalks more and more of our people? Our economic system has not solved the problem of poverty and financial troubles. Who will provide a way of escape? Who will provide the strength to carry on? Who will provide the hope to believe in a better future when all we see around us and as we look back over the years and generations is this battleground strewn with suffering over the course of human history? So the answer to these questions is the key element that separates us from everyone around us because we know that God is that someone. He is Jehovah Yireh, the Lord who will provide as Isaac learned from his father that day. Now, the thing is, on, on a grand scale, we get that. I don't think I'd have to convince anybody, or I, I don't think anyone would debate what I've just said up to this point. We, we get that. We understand that. But on a personal, day-in, day-out level, admit it, we sometimes worry And we sometimes lack the confidence that Abraham showed that day in our daily life. Have you ever faced a trial, a situation that makes life miserable and you just didn't know what to do and you struggled thinking, what do I do? What do I, how do I, how do I deal with this? And you worried. Maybe, maybe you are right now. Maybe, I mean, we know we shouldn't worry, but we do. Or have you perhaps just felt like you don't have as much spiritual vim and vigor as you would like to have, maybe as you used to have? You know God is there, but you know you just feel like the tank is a little bit low, and, and, and you wish you had more, and so you think, well, maybe, maybe I don't have the, the faith and the confidence Abraham had. Maybe there are days when it's, it's, it's hard to see the forest for the trees, the, the, the micro-challenges that we face each day, the bills, uh, the antagonistic neighbors, the, the traffic jams, uh, the harsh word from a co-worker maybe, maybe the, uh, the lack of appreciation from a spouse, or, uh, or perhaps even wishing we had what we didn't. Yesterday, I was thinking about the sermon and thinking about this topic, and I uh, pulled up uh, behind... Uh, 
a Jaguar, uh, not, not a uh, animal, but the, the, the vehicle Jaguar, at a traffic light. And I was just thinking, you know, thinking about God will provide, and I just wish he would provide me with that Jaguar or something like that. Here I am in my, my fit, you know, Honda Fit. It has a horn that no man can really be proud of. <laughs> when you hit the horn, it goes beep, beep, beep. It sounds like a little toy car. Not so, and so you try to avoid hitting the horn because it's just so embarrassing. But I, I couldn't help but think to myself, just for, for a moment, you know, it wouldn't be bad if God would provide me a Jaguar, maybe, just for a little while. Sometimes what we, we, we know that God will provide, but we sometimes wish maybe he'd provide a little bit more or a little bit more quickly or in a way that would we'd understand a little bit better, quicker, but yet we go on through life and the days go by. So as a reminder and, and maybe a break from the news cycle that we're in, we're going to examine three ways in which God provides. And the title certainly, I think, could be God will provide then, or that I'm using is God will provide. And I think it fits, it fits well with actually uh, Mr. Weston's article in the magazine, uh, as uh, Mr. DeSimone was, was talking about. He talks about stability, three pillars of stability in difficult times. And, and so it's certainly on our minds. How, how do we cope? How do we remain stable? And I would add this to the mix then. How do we have confidence in God providing in a day, in a time when there's confusion and stress and strife and maybe we can have our, our doubts sometimes in the day to day. So God will provide, and we're going to look at three ways in which he does as we begin. So how does he provide? In, in what ways? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and here we have this section that recounts the children of Israel leaving the promise, leaving the land of, of bondage. And we're going to jump down to a, a, a statement that gives us a, a principle to, with which to begin. He says, verse, verse 13 then, or verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. So we're to learn from them upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands Take heed lest he fall. Be overconfident. Good lesson for us all. But he has, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So number one, God provides a way of escape. One of the ways in which God provides for us is by providing a way of escape. And we see a number of examples in the Bible that illustrate that. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And you know what happened next. God, and as we read here in verse, verse 14 and 15 and 16, he said, I want you to build an ark, a way of escape. So in this case, even as God was going to bring the, 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 the penalty for wickedness 
on the earth and wiped the slate clean, he provided for Noah a way of escape from the wicked world and also a way of escape from the flood waters that were going to come on the earth. So we have a pattern of God providing, in at least the two very quickly, a way of escape for individuals who were, who were followers. We see verse 17, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive. And it goes on from there. So we see God's full of surprises, and he made a dramatic way for Noah and his family to escape. Again, both from the evil world and from the cataclysmic punishment that God was going to bring. Let's go flip forward just a little bit in in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We see another example of God providing a, a way of escape, in this case, for the Israelites. So... Exodus chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse, the first part of the chapter shows how they were beginning to suffer. First, chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, we're going to write to the, to the key verse here in chapter, uh, 2 and verse 23. It happened in the process of time then that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob, and he looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. He remembered them. He, he noted that, okay, it's, it's time to make a way of escape. He saw their suffering, and he made a way of escape. And, and the next chapters actually are about how that happened. We see uh, the plagues that were visited upon Egypt, in chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 until in chapter 12, verse, let's go to verse 31 of chapter 12. We're reminded that verse 31, he called for Moses, that is Pharaoh, by night and Aaron by night, and he said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. So he, 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 the way of escape just, the door just burst open wide. Here they've been in slavery. They've been suffering. We read a little bit about the details of the bondage under which they've been suffering. And, and now that they're, they're pushed right out the door, you might say. And so he says, the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. And the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians, and out they went. The way of escape was made for them. Just like God, God does... One of the ways he provides for us is making a way of escape, and he certainly did in this situation. Uh, Cross the page in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. 
It says, it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So he led them around a way of escape that that was customized for them so that they could be able to make the journey and potentially not be discouraged by the war that they might see if they went the way of the Philistines. So God made a customized way of escape for them. He says, verse 18, so the people led, so God led the people around the, by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And then we come to chapter 14, and we see again this same principle of a way of escape is again revisited because in this case, they come up to the Red Sea, and you know the story. We see verse uh, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Ziphon, and you shall camp before it by the sea. And as we read the story, we see that, in effect, their trial became a way of escape, didn't it? Because the very thing that stood in their way that looked like it was, it was going to, to be disastrous opened up and provided their escape. So it was disastrous for the Egyptians, but not for them. Literally, their trial, in this case, showing how God turns things on their heads at times. Their very trial became their way of escape. Has this ever happened to you when you've been in a trial, you've been in, you faced something, and it just opened up, and you, it turned upside down overnight. The boss that was antagonistic, became suddenly, because of something that happened, became your greatest ally. Or uh, whatever it might be. But these things happen where God turns things on his, on his head. We see that God planned to continue to do so, because if you, if you flip forward a few chapters, we'll just take a brief look. But Exodus chapter 23, God was thinking about a way of escape for the Israelites as he provided for them, because he already had planned to use hornets to uh, to clear the land before them. Exodus 23 and verse verse 28. We're breaking into the whole section here, but I would, I just want to highlight the point how God was thinking ahead here, planning their way of escape, because he says in verse 27 of Exodus 23, I will send my fear before you, he told them. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite. That's appropriate for hornets, I always thought. But uh, the Hivite, the Canaan, get it, hive, hive and hornets. Okay. Mr. Mr. DeSimone, really, you should have prayed for the congregation to be awake as, as well. So, but he says, I will send before you. Uh, hornets which shall, before you which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. So he had a plan, a plan for a way of escape for them. Now, this is, I, I've just, in a few minutes here, we've gone over some examples in, in the Old Testament of how God provides through a way of, of escape. We find it's a theme in the New Testament as well because we go to Matthew 24, for example. Matthew 24. And here we read 
in verse 15, he says, Christ told his disciples and he warned them about a time that would come when they would need to escape, when they would need to flee because of the, of the danger of, of being in the city. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. In other words, he warned them. You can read the rest of this section about the warning to escape, to flee, as Jerusalem was being attacked. And we know that warning was not just for, for, for that time, but even looking forward into the future, it's for an end time as well. A way of escape. God, in certain situations, he provides that way of escape. In fact, we go to Revelation chapter 12. We read about a, a way of escape that's, that's promised for his church If we are obedient to him, if we follow him, if we're dedicated to him, if we're faithful to him, he tells us that he'll provide us a way of escape, even a physical uh, escape here right at the very end. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13. This is what we talk about as the uh, fleeing to a place of safety or or protection or final training, whatever you call it. It's a way of escape, isn't it? It's a way to escape the horrors that are going to come upon this earth. And he says, verse 13, When the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the woman, the church, as it explains earlier in the chapter, we see very clearly, it's referring to the church, is promised a way of escape from the dark and, and, and dangerous days ahead. So, I ask you then, think about this, as, as we think about God's providing for us, in what ways in your life? Have there been ways where he's provided a way of escape for you? Where he's actually allowed, opened up a door, so that you're given relief from a situation that was oppressing you? And if, if not, you can count on the fact that there, as we face trials in the days ahead, there will come times where God will do that for us if we ask of him. That's one way that he provides. It's providing us a way of escape. A way of escape. Now, we might, you know, we might prefer a jaguar uh, at the moment, but I guarantee you that when we're suffering, when we're struggling, we, we like a way of escape, don't we? To, to have relief from the trial that we're facing. Let's talk about a second, a second thing that he provides. Let's go, in this case, back to Exodus. Did you ever wish you could be like Popeye? Um, I mean, not literally in the cartoon necessarily, but instead of, of like a spiritual Popeye. Have you ever thought about this? In, instead of popping a, a can of spinach into your mouth and suddenly getting a Big bicep, bump, 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 you know, and the bicep come out, boom, boom, boom. Instead, just imagine if we could have like a spiritual Popeye pill where we could, when we're struggling, when we're, we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we need a way, need a way of escape, that there was a pill, a Popeye pill, maybe it could even be green for spinach, and it would, we'd pop it into our mouth and spiritually we'd feel stronger. 
you know, like Popeye, except spiritual spinach, I suppose, and get this boost of spiritual strength. Well, Exodus chapter 16, we see an example here, Exodus chapter 16, of how God provided strength, and that's the second way in which we see in the scriptures that God provides. He provides strength. As we face a trial, sometimes he doesn't just... He doesn't just push us right out of it or open the door in front of us. Sometimes he gives us the strength to to endure. And that's a different type of providing, but it's very real. We see with the with the Israelites here that they what they needed food. They needed bread. They needed sustenance. And, And God provided. In this case, he provided exactly what they needed for survival. He says, verse 1. Of chapter Exodus 16, they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, you know how they feel. I know how they feel. I only, just To me, it happens in the afternoon, you know, when, when, when I haven't had something to eat in a, a very little while, and I begin to feel grumpy. Just ask those around me. And, and, and I, you know, I, I would like something to eat to feel better. I need to be provided with some sardines or, or, or something. If you're not a sardine lover, you don't really know what life is like. So, um, so, so you know, we want something to give us a little bit of a boost, something to, to strengthen us, don't we, physically? So we know how they felt. They were, they were starving. They were hungry. And, that, and they, they, they needed food. And God provided them. He literally provided them on a day-by-day basis, a customized delivery. This is even better than... Dash or, or, or whatever. Uh, one of the, the door, you know, delivery systems of food today. God just, he rained it down on the, on the bushes, you know, on the ground. So they, they go and pick it up every morning. Ding, you know, whatever, like dash it. And, and they would have their, they would have their sustenance. But, but it's an example, a very real example about how God literally provided the physical sustenance they needed each and every day to survive. God provides. He didn't make them forage for themselves, saying, look, hey, look, I've, got, I've gotten you out of Egypt. At this point, it's up to you, you know. Scrounge around. Learn how to survive in the wilderness. Learn how to dig up, you know, plants and eat bugs or clean bugs, whatever it might be. But, you know, scrounge for yourself. I've already done a lot for you. No, he said, I'll provide for you. I'm going to give you bread. And, and he did, and this is what we read about in the chapter. He gave them strength. And he did so every day for 40 years. Now we come to John chapter 6. If we flip forward, we see that that's a direct parallel to what God does for us. Because sometimes the way out is not given for us because he wants us to learn. And so instead, he gives us the strength that we need so we can learn what we need to learn from the lesson. We see John chapter 6, and uh, we'll begin reading here in, let's go to verse, uh, down to verse uh, 20, verse 30, 31, 32. Verse 32. 
Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. He provided for them. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, if we have confidence in Jesus Christ, if we believe he he is, he does what he says, and he'll strengthen us, and we look to him for help to be our provider, he says, "I I will be there. I will strengthen you. You don't need a Popeye pill, you know. You don't need some sort of a something that you can hold in your hand. He says, I will give you the spiritual strength that you need to face the very real challenges of life. And we see that as we flip forward into the first days of the church because Acts chapter 1, we see directly that happening. Acts chapter 1. And, and, and verse 8, he, he reminds them of that, of this, I should say. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, as he's speaking to the disciples, these last days, this, these very last days before he, he ascended, these 40 days. And, and if you imagine, if you had a, a son or a daughter and you only had 40 days left to, to live before you knew you were going to die, what would you talk to them about? What would you focus on? Wouldn't you focus on the things that are most important to you? Well, that's what Christ did. So he talked about his kingdom. He gave them hope. And he talked about the fact that they would have a power that would come from him. As he had promised back in John 14, we read about the, the comforter. He said, I, as, as what I, I'm about, I'll die, but the comforter, the Holy Spirit, will, you'll have access then to the Holy Spirit to strengthen you to deal with the challenges that are going to face you. And here he said, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that's a very different, uh, you might say, a, a, a different level of, of strength and competence and, and, and faith than what we see just days before this. When Peter had denied him, all the other disciples had run away. Here he says, I'm going to give you the strength to stand up and be a witness as opposed to a runaway. And, and we see that's exactly what happened. Because if you flip forward then, just the next couple of pages, you, you read about how they were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse, and first for a couple of verses of chapter 2, and then chapter 2, verse 14. Then Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Here he was having the strength and the confidence and the faith that he was willing to stand before those who had, many of whom likely had said, Kill him! Kill him! 
And yet he stood in front of them and told them this. If you look across the page, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now that was a very different man from just days before. How, how did that happen? That was the Spirit of God that was strengthening him. That was promised by Christ, and the promise was made good as he and the other disciples then began the early church under Christ's rulership and leadership and inspiration. God didn't remove them. He didn't provide them a way of escape from the challenge. He actually strengthened them so that through the challenge, they could actually build the church. That's what God does. That's what God can do for us if we ask him for strength. Because, again, number two, God provides spiritual strength for us if we will ask of him. We see, if you just flip the page to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, Let's go to verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now look what it says in verse 33. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. That's, that's a very different set of men than just days before. God provides strength. Through his spirit. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Keep moving through the New Testament because we see this theme is repeated. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2. Here's what Paul said to the church at Corinth. He said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to. In other words, it wasn't his own. It wasn't because of, he was a he was an excellent glib speaker. That wasn't what it was all about. It wasn't his great wisdom. Uh, he said, as he goes on, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In other words, he said, uh, what I told you was what you needed to understand and hear. That there is, there is one, the Messiah has come, and he has laid down his life for you, and he's fulfilling what we read about in the, the text of old. He was, he wasn't, uh, wasn't wowing them by his great ability to speak great and flowing and uh, attractive words that had them transfixed as he spoke or his great logic, so he could compete with the, the, the logic teachers of the day, the Greek philosophers. That's not what he came with. He said, verse 2, or verse 3 rather, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So God can give us power if we will, if we recognize that it comes from Him as opposed to, as I said, great logic and reasoning from God's Word, what He says, if we believe it 
And we're willing to follow it. We're willing to, uh, to lay our lives on the line to follow what he says as opposed to human reasoning, ways to get around what he says, which is so often the, the case, or add to what he says, which is often the case as well. No, instead, if we do what he says, if we live by what he says and ask him for his help, he will, he will give it. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. Again, some more words from, from Paul. Ephesians chapter 3. And we read here, verse, verse 13, he says, Therefore, he asks of the church at Ephesus, he says, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Verse 14, for this reason I bow, he says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Powerful words, again, accentuating the fact that God provides strength through his spirit. Even as we struggle on through, through trials and challenges, and obstacles. Now, there's a third point about how he provides, I want to then focus on, and that is he gives us hope. He provides hope. There's a saying, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up somewhere else. And our society doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't know where it's going. It, it considers our human journey an, an evolving experiment in politics in human relations, and in the the management of our our planet. And if we we analyze the track record of where man's efforts and man's ideas have have brought us, it doesn't leave us with a lot of hope. For, For example, if you don't accept God as the author of the family, then how you do family is really a matter of opinion and preference, isn't it? And so that's why we are where we are, because... Our, our society does not accept God as the author and definer of what marriage is and how it should be done. So it's, it's left up to everybody to come up with their own preferences. The roles, the responsibilities of husband and wife, whether it should be husband and husband or wife and wife, or whatever you want to, you want to take from every angle as you look at at marriage and what it's all about in our world today well how it's how it's how it's conceived it is it is conceived as a a process that is is actually a matter of human civilization and if for example if you listen to some of the the frankly some of the the more popular authors on marriage and the family today I'll talk about things like, for example, we had in our civilization, patriarchy has been 
the way it's been because men, basically, men are just stronger and, and they'll give, the, give this whole spiel about why it's been the way it's been. And they'll say, today, in fact, we, it's on my mind because we, we watched a, a video, a TED Talk yesterday in one of our, our classes by Hannah Rosen called The End of Men. Some of you have, have seen that. But basically she says, look, we're at a point in the evolution of the family where we, we're, we're done with the way it's been. And now it's a time where women really are, are, are the leaders. And um, if you want to look it up on, online, look up uh, Hannah Rosen, The End of Men. And I think you'll be quite enlightened by, by what she says. The point being, the family is simply something that's just evolved. Where if you believe in, in, in contrast that the family was designed, was built, was established by God, well then the whole perspective changes, doesn't it? But we're at a point where what we're, what, where we are in terms of the family leaves us in shambles in our society. And, and so, therefore, it affects our ability to hope that we're going to be able to have a, of a society that has any foundation, because a family ultimately is the foundation of the community and society. So, so we're left with a point, I'm just picking one slice out, where we have confusion. That's what man, man's ideas have brought. And you can go down the list of, every, as we turn in every dimension in our society, again, whether it's government, politics, the environment, God, God commanded Adam and Eve to dress and keep the environment. Have we dressed and keep our environment? You don't have to be a tree hugger to say, no, we have not. We have, we've done quite the opposite. And, and it's not just today. The Sahara Desert is, a, is an example of not dressing and keeping the environment, deforestation. So this is not something new. Mankind, as a, as, as a way of life, has not dressed and kept the, society, the, the environment. I saw some years ago a, a satellite image of, of Burma when we were living in Thailand, and it showed parts of Burma because the deforestation was so extensive in, the, in major swaths, the deforestation of the teak trees that they cut down and, 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 and sold but it was so, and without reforest, any reforestation. And because in that type of climate, most of the, the, uh, the, the, the matter of, in the soil, the nutritional matter is, is actually in the vegetation, about 80% versus 20% in the soil. In our temperate climate, it's the reverse. But, but in that climate, it's, it's most in the trees. So when the trees are cut down, the, the rains come, the soil is washed away, and it becomes just denuded. It becomes like, like parts of Nepal look like today. But, it, but from the satellite images, it looked like moonscape because it was so vast. Now, that's a, a tiny little sliver of an example, but that's been the history of mankind in terms of whether it's our monoculture or, or one thing or another. So does mankind have the have solutions that seem to offer real hope? No, I don't think so. But yet God gives us hope. God gives us hope. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 8. He provides a hope that is nowhere else to be found. Zechariah chapter 8. We rehearse this every year at the Feast of Tabernacles in particular. And it's so, it's so pleasing, isn't it? It's like rain falling on thirsty ground. I mean, to, to hear these words of what the future holds, it just, it, it gives us a sense of everything's going to be okay. But that's not what our, our neighbors around us here, they don't have this hope. 
Zechariah chapter 8. Just let's listen to these words. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. He says, verse, uh, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord's of hosts, the holy mountain. And thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. This is the picture that's given of a future, of a millennial future. He says, as he goes down through verse 6 and 7, verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, he says, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I'll bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Society will prosper in truth and in righteousness. Not chaos and confusion and hatred, but in truth and righteousness. So God gives us the picture of a a better day. Romans chapter 15. He provides hope for us. Romans chapter 15. And we read here verse verse 4. He says to the church at Rome, I, I am myself and confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I've written more boldly. Verse, oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to um, back up a little bit. Yes, uh, verse verse 7, where he talks about the, uh, the fact that this hope extends to all people, not just to Jews or Israelites. Um, verse, uh, let's go to verse verse 7, verse 6, Therefore receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And he says, verse 10, again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. So it's not just for the Jews, it's not just for even the Israelites, but literally Christ is called the hope of the Gentiles, the hope of all mankind. God, God provides hope of a future, a physical future in the millennium. And and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a a couple pages over, points even further, doesn't it? Because 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a hope that we have that's even beyond the physical. Where we read, I'm not going to read the whole section here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 35, it tells us that life is not just about everything physical. And there's a difference between the physical and the spiritual. And we'll have an opportunity to taste the spiritual. That's a hope that puts everything else in in a different perspective, doesn't it? We don't have to fix the world today. And we can't. But we don't have to worry about it. Because he provides us a vision that there's more. This is all just an exercise in futility. At the end of the day, 
This is an exercise in the futility of man. And for us to get caught up in it, and uh, for us to get caught up in the debates and the striving about it, is to ex- actually be, be part of that experience of the futility of man. But we have a hope that's, that's beyond all this stuff. Like a bunch of little tiny, you know, munchkins arguing over everything. It's like we just walk past the munchkins and let them munch, you know. That's, we can't we be pulled down. I, I think of one, one fellow who used to talk about sometimes when he, he had little girls and uh, he said, sometimes I come, my little girls, I come home and they're, I feel like, is it Gulliver? Who's the, is it Gulliver, the big guy with all the little people who all were tying him down and all these? I feel like Gulliver, you know. They're, all the kids are all pulling, pulling at me and this and that and all that. And, and so I thought, that's a funny sort of imagery, isn't it? Well, that's the way it can be, can be for us in this world where we're pulled by all this stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's really, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's meaningless. Only it's, it's not meaningless because it means a lot to people who literally have their lives consumed by it. So it's not meaningless. But it is an exercise in futility. But he says, verse 50, This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's all going to be different in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is, this is all going to be behind us. He says, verse 54, verse 53, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. What more of a hope could we want than that? That death itself will be swallowed up in the victory of, of Christ and his sacrifice so that we will be able to experience life in God's family. Now, I, I've enunciated three ways that God provides for us, a way of escape, uh, spiritual strength, and, and hope. And there, there are certainly other elements that God provides. Uh, I just think of the top, the top of my head, peace of mind, um, protection, knowledge, wisdom. There are, are a lot of things that God provides that you could add to the list, but I've given you, I've given you three. And, and that's, I think, a good start on the, on the topic. But that does bring us to another question. And that is the, the application. And how, what, what must we do knowing that God will provide? And we experience this in our own lives, at least as fathers and mothers, where we're commanded in First Timothy to, to actually provide for our children, else we're counted as one who is unrighteous, right? So we, we, we experience what it's like, and we know what it's like to provide for our children if we have the blessing of children, and, and, and experience what it's like for God in that sense. To, to actually provide for our own children and what a blessing it is and how, and how when we, when we feel like we're doing a good job with that, how, how important that is. And when we feel like we're failing, how, how much of a struggle that is. So we experience that in our own lives to a certain degree. But I just want to, just want to talk just briefly though about a couple of, of things that we must do knowing that God will provide that we see from the examples in the Bible, some of which I've, I've touched on. The first is, is we have to wait on God's timing. 
We have to wait, be able to wait on God's timing. We go back to the story of Abraham, and we see that Abraham, in Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 16, we see that Abraham didn't always, because that's what's recorded for us here, Abraham's life with the blemishes as well as his successes. We see Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Verse 2, uh, Please go in to my maid, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. You know that culturally this was not uncommon if the uh, wife in a household like this was barren, that it was not uncommon for uh, uh, a handmaiden to actually produce children on her behalf. And they were actually born onto her knees so that they were her, it was her child. That's the way it was done, and, and we can see that from history. But what's interesting is the word, when it says, Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, that, that has an echo to it, doesn't it? What other account do we read in the Bible where a man heeded the voice of his wife and unfortunately, in this case, did not show the leadership that he should and it led to problems? Sound familiar? Well, just flip over a few pages because back in in Genesis, we read in verse 17 of chapter 3, this same phrase, in fact, it's exactly the same word, it says, verse 17 of chapter Genesis chapter 3, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and it all goes down from there, right? Okay. So we see Abraham, he wasn't perfect. He was a man. He struggled. In this case, he, he actually made a poor decision, and he, wasn't, he did not wait on God's timing. He didn't wait on God's timing. And we find the same thing. Of Moses, Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, you know where I'm going to go because we we know a lot about Moses' life from the things that are recorded here, at least some of the good examples and also bad examples. Here, he wasn't willing to wait on God, he took matters into his own hands. Exodus chapter 2 and... And we see verse uh, 11, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And here comes the rebuff. He said, verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? And so Moses feared and said, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. He didn't actually say that, but that was, that was the gist of it. And we, we find an interesting uh, parallel to this back in Acts, don't we? Where we get a little bit more in the story. Acts chapter 7, we see a little more of... Of, of, uh, of Moses' attitude here. I'm just going to go to verse 25. The rest of it we just basically read this story. But verse 25 of Acts 
And, and verse se- chapter 7 gives us a little bit more insight. Verse 25, or verse 24, I'll give you one more verse to give a running start into it. He says, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and he struck down the Egyptian. Verse 25 Here's the why, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. It's, it is a dangerous thing to appoint ourselves a leader on God's behalf, unless it's very, very clear that that's what God wants us to do. And in this case, God didn't want him to do it, because this was, this was on Moses. He wanted to fix the problem, but he was not the one who provides. We are not the one who provides. God is. And Moses had to learn a lesson that took him 40 years. To learn that it was God who provides, not man, not him. And when we come back around 40 years later, it seems like he got the picture pretty well. Because he's called a very humble man. It took 40 years, probably for us, at least 40, maybe more, I don't know. But he learned the lesson, didn't he? And he learns that it's God who provides. And You know, it's interesting because in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, if you go back, when, I'll just, I'll just mention it, but in Genesis 22 and verse 8, when we read of God providing on behalf of, of Abram, the, the word actually, it doesn't just mean Provide like we might think. Just, I'll give you something. I provided you that. I, I, I provide you a meal, a food. It actually has, it's, it's, it, that's part of it, but it, it's even broader, and it has the sense of seeing, perceiving, being aware of. If you look, go ahead and look it up in a, in a Bible dictionary, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's ra'ah, that's the, the Hebrew word. And so, in other words, understanding what we're reading here about Moses and the, and the Israelites, God, when he provides for us, he actually, he, it's not just he gives us what we want or gives us even what we need. It's like he recognizing our, he recognizes our needs and his antenna are up to make sure it's the right time, the right way for, the, for our benefit. And his, I don't mean that God has antenna, that sounds sort of odd, but, but I mean, in other words, his perception is very sharp in knowing his discernment in knowing what is best for us. He perceives and provides. So it's broader than that. So as far as the Israelites, God had a plan, and it had to fit in the right time, and he was the one who knew when it should happen and how it should happen, and who then was able to carry it out. Not Moses. In Exodus 2, as we read Exodus 2 in this, the account, God was, was very aware of what was going on. He knew the geopolitics between Egypt and the rulers of Canaan and all the other variables that he, that he was very aware of. I might just add one. I don't think I'll go there now, but I thought it's, it's worth adding to the, to the mix, to the study, if you want to go through this and give it some thought. And that is that's another example of... Um, of not waiting on God's timing. I gave you the example of Abraham and Moses, but there's another example that comes to mind just before David, that's Saul, right? Because there's the classic example of Saul in first, first Samuel 13, where he thought he was right in offering the offering. The offering should have been offered, right, before they went into battle, but he was wrong. Why? I mean, in other words, the, the offering part was right, 
but he was supposed to wait on, on Samuel to lead in the offering. And who's to say, because it says he waited the appointed seven days for Samuel. Who's to say that Samuel didn't say, I'll be there in seven days, or I'll prepare for seven days, or whatever was said. Maybe he ran into a traffic jam along the roads. I don't know. You know what? If it's like Charlotte here, uh, for some reason he was not able to do what apparently was said, but that did not make it right for Saul to take into his hands what was not his responsibility. That did not allow him to do that. He did not wait as he should have. And so even though he felt he was right, he was not under authority. So therefore, it was if Samuel was not coming through on a, a, a covenant that he had made, that's Samuel's problem, not Saul's, right? And, and so that's another example I think that's uh, worthwhile in and under this point, in terms of what we must do, number one, what we must do in terms of applying, that is, uh, wait on God's timing. The second point to what we must do, okay, this is in the, the application of the, the three main points of, of how, uh, how we wait on God. The second thing that we should remember is that we need to follow the guidance that He's already given. You know, sometimes our challenge lies not in an absence of guidance or encouragement, but in the fact that the guidance and encouragement that God has already given us is not to our liking. Um, it's like the guy who, who uh, was hiking along in the mountains, and he, he fell over the side of a cliff, he slipped, and as he was falling, he was grabbing at branches, finally grabbed on one and he's hanging there by this branch, and he's thinking, oh, no, what's, what's the, what am I to make of this? And he said, God, help me! God, help me! And so he hears this voice from above that says, let go of the branch. He thought for a second, he said, is there anybody else up there? Okay, in other words, he was not, I'm sure you heard this story, he, is, he, he didn't like that answer, he wanted a different one. But we can be the same way, can't we? We can be the same way. Where we already know the answer, when we're, we're struggling and we want God to, to provide for us, and, and in, in reality, He's already given us the guidance. And this is, let's say, for example, we've, we're first starting to obey the Sabbath until it becomes habituated and it becomes more natural. We bump up to a sunset and we think, oh, should I do this or not do this? And, and it's, it may be a, a battle of conscience. Should I work or not work? Well, actually, there's really no question about it. It's just whether we're going to obey it, right? So this happens sometimes where we already know the answer, that we already know the course, and yet we say, I need some inspiration. I I need to give me a feeling, God. Inspire me so I know what to do. And God must look down and say, I already told you. It's in my word. It's there. What do you, you want some special thing in, you know, that comes off? No, it's there. Follow what I've already told you. And we can do this sometimes. We want a special inspiration and feeling from God to guide us when he's already given us his, his, his guidance. We don't like the way of escape that God has provided. Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy chapter 1 gives us an example of that. We read here verse, as, as they're recounting what had gone before, I spoke to you at that time, we, we read here, 
saying, I am alone, not, am not able to bear you. Okay, this is as it's, again, this, their, their travels and lessons are being rehearsed here. The Lord, verse, this is verse 10 now, the Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord of your, uh, may the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 19, I'm looking for. Oh, here, yes, verse 19, sorry. Verse 19. I wrote, I thought it was 11, but that second number is a 9, so it needs to be a little bit bigger. Let's go to verse 19 then. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and he says, verse um, verse 20, and I said to you, uh, yeah, verse 20, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. Look, verse 21, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and the cities into which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well, and it goes on from there. We have a little, there's an added component here that we don't find in the, in the other uh, rendering of it. But but you you understand what was going on there. They're saying, look, okay, um, let's just go check out to see if it's okay. To see if, if it's not too dangerous to go into the land. Well, the whole point of this operation was to go into the land, wasn't it? I mean, that was the point from the beginning to leave Egypt and go into the land of Canaan. So why do you need to go check it out just in case? And we do this sometimes with obedience to God. We think, well, see, what will happen if I do this? Whether it be, it can be working or and Sabbath keeping, it can be tithing, it can be, uh, it can be applying God's principles. Um, uh, Ephesians 5 lays out a very basic, clear instruction into how to handle problems within marriage. And yet, how many times do we say, yeah, I know, I want, I, I, I want to respect him. But, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's not worth it. He hasn't, he hasn't earned my respect. But God says, this is what you do. You are commanded to give respect to your husband. And a husband, man, I want to love her. It's just that, man, sometimes she's just not very lovable, you know. And so, but, but we don't get the option to say how, how we want this thing to work. We're given commands about what we should do. But we don't think that's good enough. We want to figure out some way around it so we can do our own thing. How about, how about going to our brother? We have problems with another person, and yet Matthew 18 explains what to do it, what to do, but it's so much easier to go talk to everybody else about it, isn't it? It's so much easier. What should I do? I have this issue. This, my, my brother has, they've done this thing, and I, what should I do? Well, I don't know, except, have you read your Bible? Because we're told what to do. Why are we even entertaining the question? It says, don't talk to everybody. Don't be a rumor bearer. That's what it says. Oh, well, I, I wasn't really bearing rumors. I was just, you know, talking to people about it. So how does that work? So what I, you understand what I'm saying. So many times, the things that we battle with, the, the, it's, it's there already. It's just a matter of, of not wanting to go that way. And, and the thing about it is, is if we want God to provide for us, 
then we have to be willing to work the plan, follow the guidelines that he's given to us. We wait on his timing, we work the guidelines, and, and then we can either count on him to make a way of escape, to give us the strength to work our way through it, or certainly to give us hope that even through this struggle, better days will come. But, but we have to be willing and able to work the, work the plan, work the, the journey, work the trail that he's laid out for us. Let's go back to Genesis chapter, chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. If we think about the implications of, of what happened this day, it, we, do, what we, find, we find an echo that is, that is actually just echoing down through time where God tells Abraham, Exodus 22, we're going to read this again as we, as we come to full circle here. We see, when Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, what are we going to do? Where's the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. We read words that encapsulate God's love for himself. I mean, God's love for us is so great that he was he's willing actually, in a sense, to in a certain time and place, to turn his back on providing for his son. That's how much he loves us, is that when his son was in agony and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God, for us, in order to provide for us, allowed that moment to happen. Yes, ultimately you can say he was providing for him, because he said, I will not leave your 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 Soul, your body in the, in, the, in the grave. We understand that Christ recognized that he was providing for him and what was to come. But yet he did endure that moment, didn't he? He did endure that moment where God, in that sense, if you want to describe it, turned his back or did not save him when he could have sent legions of angels, as Christ told, uh, told Peter and his, his disciples. Revelation chapter 13, we read that he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. And we see that echoed in the promise to Adam and Eve, where we see the prophetic promise of Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 12, when we read of the death angel passing over, and the lamb was to be slain, and the blood was to be put on the, the lintel and the doorpost, we find that, this, that echo, this, what we're reading right here, echoes again. God's concern for us to provide for us is so great that he built this, 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 this echo into human his, into the history of the scriptures to remind us of who he is and his desire for us. He was slain exactly like Abraham was inspired to say. God provided and allowed his son to be, to be slain. And so 4,000 years ago, on a mountain called Moriah, Right here, Abraham the faithful taught his son that most powerful lesson. His, his son Isaac said, how is this all supposed to work out? How will we accomplish what we're supposed to do? And Abraham said, the Lord Yahweh Yirah will provide. The Lord will provide. And he provided a lamb that took away the sins of the world. And our goal 
to live as Abraham did with conviction that God will provide, our goal is, is something that occupies us each and every day, doesn't it? And it really, it's, it's, it's driven by Christ's words in the New Testament. Matthew chapter, chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we read this fundamental principle. Matthew chapter 6. I remember, actually, I was thinking about this this, this morning. And I, I have this memorized. You know why I have this memorized? Because 40 years ago, I was just thinking of, the, of when it was. 40 years ago, Mr. Ames and SCP and the Christian Living Class made us, or made us, he gave us the opportunity to memorize Matthew 6, 33, and the verses leading up to it read like this. It says, verse 25, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, like we were hearing about in the sermonette. What's he saying? God will provide. God will provide. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Consider how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore we do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. In other words, He's got it. He's he's got a plan. He'll provide for you. He gives you the hope. He he just asks that you endure, and he'll give you the strength to endure. He'll make a way of escape if that's what is necessary for your character growth. But he'll provide for you. But on your part, you have to be willing to 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 actually believe and have faith that he will. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And verse 33, that's the one that Mr. Ames had us memorize in 19, I was thinking in 1980 at SCP. That's what we, that and the, the Ten Commandments, that's what, uh, that's what he had us do. And it it sticks and it counts because it's a fundamental principle that, that really is important for us to, to live by each and every day. So what is it that we need? Is it peace of mind? Is it financial stability? Is it wisdom? Um, is it understanding how to approach the decisions that we need to make for our family, how to deal with our children and raising our children and, and, and teaching them in a, in a world that is intent on manipulating their minds? What, what is it that we, that we need? What is it that we're asking of God? Maybe we need God to provide us with help for our health or a, we desire a spouse or a friend that we need. God is the provider. 
And he will provide for us. He loves us like we love our own children, and he will provide for us. He'll provide that way of escape when we need it. And he'll provide the strength to persevere if that's what we need. And and he certainly provides the hope of, of a better future. And most importantly, most importantly, he's provided his son, Jesus Christ, to remove from us the blemish of our sins. As promised through the words of Abraham and all the way throughout the scriptures as that account, as that story, as that theme un- unfolds. So ultimately, ultimately, we can be like him, like our elder brother Jesus Christ, and we can be part of the family of God.